You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Hi, uh, I'm Jane. Today's Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, if you haven't met me before, my name is Coy and I'm the associate pastor here. And we're actually in the final part of the sermon of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, uh, our Awakened series, a sermon which has challenged his listeners. Uh, Jesus has challenged his listeners in ways never before uh, with a call to be kingdom people living under God's rule, to be poor in spirit, to mourn for sin, to be the salt and light of the world, to be more righteous than the most righteous of the time. Jesus taught that not only is adultery sin, but to even look at a person with lustful intent is sinful, that it is better to get rid of the the body part that causes you to sin rather than your whole body end up in destruction. He taught to not only hate your enemies, uh, he taught not to hate your enemies, but to love them. Pray for them is what he taught. He taught us how to give. He taught us how to pray. He taught us how to fast. He implores his listeners to lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth, uh, not to worry uh, when they have God who is generous, kind, and merciful, to not be judges, 
uh, to not be uh, to be active and intentional in prayer, to treat others as uh, as you would want to be treated. See, these were weighty commands, right? These are weighty commands. And now, as we're in Jesus's final section of his sermon, the epilogue, as you will, we see words from him uh, which draw out a particular theme and a particular tone. See, Jesus in his sermon has shared teachings that were extremely profound, countercultural, and transformational. And yet the epilogue might might just be the most important part of his sermon because it's here that Jesus essentially urges his listeners, uh, us as readers, uh, that everything we've heard heard from him so far in his sermon is not meant to be simply admired. It's not meant to be merely heard and agreed upon. It's not there for us to simply yell out an amen, to simply meditate on on these profound words. But Jesus in his epilogue here challenges his listeners that his words from his sermon are to be lived, to make a reality. Theologian R. Kent Hughes says on this final section, the saviour refuses to let his listeners bask in the grandeur of the sermon's thought. He knows that admiration without action is deadly, that conviction without commitment will dull one's spirituality. Whether Christian or not Christian here today, Jesus' sermon on the mount are not just teachings to agree upon and think positively about, to use as inspirational quotes for our social media or memory verses to just uh, remember like clockwork. No, what Jesus is preaching here is meant to be lived. Jesus lays out what it means to live in, to live out, live for, for the kingdom of God and what it requires for us to actually do it, to be those citizens, to live under the rule of, uh, of the king, not just by word or ear, but be in full submission to live our lives completely under the rule and reign of God. In Jesus' conclusion to his sermon, as he emphasises the importance of what he's taught, we'll see that in his final points, what he does is he contrasts and he breaks them up all into twos. First, he offers two ways. He then advises between two trees. He then reveals two claims. And finally, he describes two houses. As Jesus brings his sermon to a close, we see that as he describes these things in twos, he does so because what's essentially been hovering hovering over all of this, the hovering question to all his listeners all throughout this is the same question to us. Is it to be the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world? Listeners, what will be your decision? See, as we dive into the passage, Jesus begins his concluding words with what looks like a rallying call from what he's preached so far. So let's look at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. See, Jesus starts off his conclusion by offering two ways, two paths, two gates, one which is wide and easy and one that is narrow and hard. If the choice was presented to you to go down a path that is easy or one that was hard, which one would you choose? Of course, the majority of us would choose the easy path, right? And it's understandable. It just makes sense. It's a natural thing to do to want the easiest path. Like if you had a free parking spot right outside Pancake Parlor or a parking spot outside of Apple and Level 3 on the other side of High Point or the other side of the Western suburbs, which one would you choose? you'd choose the pancake parlour one. But you wouldn't have got it because I'm parked there. But anyway, of course, the majority of us here would choose the easier path. Yet, 
Well, Jesus does offer up these two ways. He starts off by commanding, commanding his listeners to do what you normally wouldn't do, to actually enter the narrow gate, the one which is hard. Now, why would Jesus command such a thing? Well, if we really think about all that Jesus has shared and taught in his sermon so far, in his Sermon on the Mount, over the past eight weeks, we notice that everything that Jesus has commanded of his listeners is actually not easy at all. It's actually very hard. Being righteous, loving your enemies, not lusting, not worrying, not wrongly judging, all of what Jesus has taught in what what it means to live under the rule of God's kingdom, his commands, his pleas, his warnings, they have all been challenging and hard. These aren't easy things. And so as Jesus begins the epilogue of his sermon with, with the command to enter the narrow gate, the way that is hard, he's essentially saying that all I have taught in this sermon that you have heard, taken together, this is the narrow gate. This is the hard way. To live as the kingdom of God's people is to enter through the narrow gate. But why exactly is the narrow gate hard? I think Jesus reveals this in his illustration of the two ways, of the two two gates. And in order to see what makes the narrow path hard, we have to contrast it with what is easy. We have to look at the other side. So let's look at verse 13. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. So picture in ancient Near East times, a sandy dirt boulevard. It's spacious, metres upon metres long. It's wide, metres wide. It's roomy. Crowds could walk next to each other side by side and it leads to an entrance with gates end to end, far and wide. It's easy to see, easy to locate, easy to get onto because it's so broad and spacious. People can bring whatever they like. Bring whatever you want. Bring along that camel. Bring along more camels. Carry along that huge sack of rice. You have no limitations. Bring along anything and everything as you please. Nothing is holding you back because this road is huge. Come along. Those who enter it by it are many. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I'm just gonna I'm gonna own it. I was a huge Guy Sebastian fan. Right? I followed him before he was on Australian Idol. So I saw him at Planet Shakers Church in Adelaide when he was singing at the front there. Afro was already pretty massive. Right? And he was there, I saw him at Planet Shakers, and I was like, this guy, I saw him on TV. I, I liked him because he was Christian and he had reached the public sphere, which was very rare around those times. That, and of course, I loved him because Angels Brought Me Here is just absolute, like, what a song, right? <laughs> but anyway, I was sad. I was very sad when I found out that he changed his stance on everything, saying he still believes in God but doesn't believe there's only one way. That, uh, that, that what everyone believes is equally significant. So it's all about believing in, in faith that has no bounds. I was sad and I'll keep praying for him. But isn't this a perfect description of our world today? Is it not easier to follow these winds of the world, the world which says there are no boundaries in what anyone thinks? You believe in reincarnation? That's okay. You believe in nature? That's cool. That's awesome. Morality, meditation, mysticism, come one, come all. There's plenty of room for all of us as long as you don't impose it on anyone else. There are no boundaries here on this path. There's plenty of room for diversity of opinion and leniency of morals. You can believe whatever you like. Just come along. No effort is needed. All you have to do is follow your inclinations. It's easy. It's easy. There's no curbs to worry about. 
no walls, no boundaries to fear in your thought or your action. Everything is permissible. You do you. It's easy. See, the gate is wide and the way is easy. And those who enter by it are many. Here are the the carefree, carefree crowds of culture. Here are the fickle followers of every flavor of the month. This is a wide road filled with waves of travelers who walk the path laughing, carefree, because it's easy. No effort is needed. Just living how they want to live, following popular thought. Yet they are deceived as they give no thought to what, what the dreadful end that awaits walking this path. But for the other gate, the one Jesus calls his followers to enter, it is narrow and the way is hard and those who find it are few. So you're contrasting it with the wide gate. I think one of the reasons why we see the narrow gate is hard is because it calls its travellers to live counterculturally. Hate your enemy, seek revenge, lust after one another. These are the values and beliefs that the world pushes out to the masses Yet to the narrow path traveller, we're commanded to do the opposite. To live counter to what the world tells us. To live not in the kingdom of the world, but to live for the kingdom of God. The wide and easy way says, believe what you want to believe and live how the many live. Tolerant of anything and everything society pushes out. A reliance on nobody but yourself. Yet to the narrow road traveller, we're called to live counter to that. To live in the beauty and the truth and make that known. To live in submission and reliance to a holy God, to put ourselves, to put others before ourselves. For those who follow Christ, more often than not, we will not believe popular thought. And the many will see that. To those who enter the narrow gate, you will not be admired for your beliefs. Jesus said earlier in his sermon to his followers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. You will be persecuted classified, vilified. This is the minority way. On the narrow path, you will be called narrow-minded, that your thoughts on God are narrowed, that your ideas of a creator, a sinner, a saviour are narrow, that your conclusions on the afterlife are narrow, that the narrow path doesn't lead to life at all, but actually sucks it away. And it makes sense why the majority of travellers on the broad path would say such things. This is the same wide path that invites people to follow their inclinations. And what the Bible says about our inclinations is what? Is that at the heart of humanity is sin. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the weakness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It is in all people's hearts that we draw to our own sinful desires in our fallenness. Hypocrisy, self-righteousness, greed, superficiality. As we've seen, these are a few of the things that Jesus has hit on in his Sermon on the Mount. Sin is what keeps us out of the kingdom of God. Sin is what keeps a traveller on the wide and easy path. See, Jesus is undeniably upfront and clear that the narrow way is hard because not only is it countercultural, but it requires the traveller to actually leave everything behind. I remember one of the obstacles on this gruelling race called Tough Mudder, to some of us who may have done it, where it was a, there was a tiny kid-sized tunnel that went for 10 metres and it was just like in mud that I had to wiggle through. Now, I couldn't fit 
right? I, I, it was embarrassing. I couldn't fit. But the main reason why I couldn't fit was because I, I dressed as Wonder Woman. So I had, a, I had a cape and I had a big wig. So it, I just had to take it all off to basically go through that tunnel. And it was really hard because a lot of my friends, we all dressed as superheroes. So one of my mates actually rented a Hulk costume, like a full Hulk costume. So he had to strip that off and he was just in his undies and he just had to go through the tunnel. But he had to take it completely off. The tunnel was too narrow. Now, just as the narrow tunnel required me to, to rid of everything that held me back, so too does a narrow gate require us to leave everything behind. Our greed, our selfish ambition, our sin, even our loved ones, Jesus says later, if necessary. It requires us to deny ourselves. Matthew 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Give our lives to Christ. It's no wonder Jesus opened this sermon with the Beatitudes and opened it with the call for listeners to see their wretchedness and pain for their sin, pain over their sin. See, Alexander McLaren, a 19th century preacher, likened uh, Jesus' opening words of this Sermon on the Mount with this narrow gate. So what he did, he painted an image of this narrow gate and the first two Beatitudes are the two side posts of this gate. And he says, one denoted that the first, the first Beatitude and the need for a consciousness of spiritual bankruptcy and the other stood for the second Beatitude's demand for sorrow over sin. This is indeed a small gate. A few people are willing to shed what is necessary to get through it. No one naturally likes to be poor in spirit or to truly mourn their sins. We must come to God holding nothing in our hands except our inadequacy and our consciousness of sin. See, the narrow road is hard, yes. But what Jesus says that is that although hard, although less popular, Although narrow, this is the way that leads to life. So Jesus here offers his listeners two choices. Will it be the narrow way to life? Or will it be the easy way to destruction? There's only two. To the 21st century listener, this would be extremely controversial. Why? Because we live in a time of excessive choice. Just go through a Macca's drive-thru and you'll see what I mean, right? We also live in a time where commitment is flimsy, where things are no longer simply yes or no, but you can click maybe on an event if you want to see if you have something better on that night to go to, right? I also think it's more preferred to be in the middle today, to not uh, deviate too far from the middle ground in case one be associated with fanatics or extremists. But Jesus makes very clear in these, two, in these verses there are only two ways to go, two choices available. There's no maybe button on which gate to walk through. It's either life or destruction. And the life and destruction Jesus is referring to is, is the eternal life of those in the kingdom of heaven or the endless destruction in the anguish of hell. So Romans 2 says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath. And fury. There is no neutral group, no third gate. Jesus describes for us only two paths and two destinations, life or destruction. Which will it be, the narrow gate or the wide? It's at this point that listeners of Jesus' sermon uh, should have had this question at the forefront of their minds. Because as Jesus continues on in his sermon, he'll reveal 
further just how narrow the path is as he describes the fruit of two trees. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognise them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, thus you would recognise them by their fruits. I think sometimes when we hear the word false prophet, uh, we automatically think of the most far out there preacher, the one who like screams heretic, right, teaching or preaching things that aren't just not um, just in like a different lane to the gospel, but they're just on a totally completely different freeway. Right? That's what we imagine. But what Jesus describes here is much more menacing, quite disturbing, to be honest. Look at what he says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. A shepherd in those days would wear sheepskin garments and their job was to watch their flock, especially against the natural enemy of the time, the wolf. But a man might be in sheep's clothing and still not be a shepherd is the point Jesus is making. The one who should be looking out and protecting the flock might in fact be the very danger to the sheep, a wolf in sheep's clothing. This isn't a danger that you can clearly see coming in to ravage the flock, but one that not only looks like it's from the flock, but is supposed to protect them. See, this is more menacing. This is subtle. It is the pastor who from the outside looks the part, but unbeknownst to the church is actually there to ravage, there to cause damage. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, there is someone standing by my side who looks just like a member of the church. He is a prophet and a preacher. He looks like a Christian. He talks and acts like one, but dark powers are mysteriously at work. It was those who sent him into our midst. He may even be unconscious himself of what he's doing. The devil can give him every encouragement and at the same time keep him in the dark about his own motives. This is disturbing to hear and to think for Jesus to speak about them in his sermon meant that already they existed in his time. In the Christian church, it's been a long and miserable history uh, of controversy with false teachers. Many have caused great damage to many people, something that sadly still occurs today. And you know what? Jesus even says later in Matthew, Matthew 24, that many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So Jesus was clear. False prophets have and will come. Churches have and will continue to be assaulted by false teachers. And they'll keep coming and coming even if churches withstand them. See, Jesus tells his listeners to beware, to be on guard, to be prepared. It's a call for us to furiously pray for our churches and our leadership, that we don't become enchanted by wolves. Thankfully, Jesus in this sermon gives listeners some help by describing how to distinguish between the false and the genuine. Look what he says. You will recognise them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. See, we see a quick shift here in Jesus' illustration from wolves in sheep's clothing to now uh, trees that bear fruit. We see a change from unawareness to a way of recognition. One could mistake a wolf in sheep's clothing, but no tree can hide its identity for long. A tree will have to bear fruit. From the good tree, good fruit. From the diseased tree, bad fruit. So if you've been in the Bible a lot, you'll notice that on occasion it refers to a tree and fruit imagery. 
such as Matthew 12, it says either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. That's just one example. But what this imagery often describes for us is a person's outward action that result from the condition of their heart. So we think of the fruits like specifically produced from the spirit-filled believer in Galatians 5, the popular verse, uh, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, to the faithful believer, fruit of the spirit, as seen in Galatians, are meant to flow from the heart of a Christ-transformed heart. Fruit is the, the product of a person's essential life. Our character and conduct matters. How much more should this be true to the pastor who shepherds his flock? I have a story from, I remember this story from a lecturer that in Canada that had at Bible College where he talked about when he was younger and a pastor and on a day he was driving, heading towards church on way, um, he was cut off by another driver and what, what he did after uh, in his anger was they did the, the cut-off dance where you just keep going and going ahead and cutting each other off, um, you know, waving, kept waving hands, they were both waving hands, each other, staring at each other. It wasn't a good moment for him, he admits. Um, there was a, it was just, there was a, one-on-one basically on the, on the cars driving, looking at one another. But then he noticed that, why is this person still following me? It's been ages. And he keeps going, keeps driving. This, you know, this has been like 15 minutes of this. And then he eventually gets to his church. He turns in the driveway and the car turns in with him. And he goes and parks somewhere and the car parks next to him. He gets out. The guy gets out. It's like, who are you? It's like, oh, I'm the pastor here. It's like, oh, okay, oh, I'm a newcomer here. They start laughing. Thankfully, they start laughing. And, and the preacher... He, he, honestly, he was repentant and in, in his humility, he admitted that he shouldn't have done that and, and he apologised. And the newcomer always will remember that and he decided to commit himself to, to, the, to the church, remembering just seeing the, the humility and the, the, the repentant heart from the preacher of that time. So Jesus is saying here, who the pastor is, how he lives, how he conducts his life will un- uncover the fleece of a sheep or the fangs of a wolf. The essence of what a a tree really is, is revealed in its fruit. Is he humble in correction or prideful in dismissing? Is he a peacemaker or a grudge holder? Is he self-sacrificial or self-absorbed? Does he encourage people out of love or bully people out of power? Does he care more about his flock or does he care more about his preservation? See, it's unfortunate that for some of us sitting here today that maybe we've experienced uh, a lot or a bit of the latter. It's extremely saddening when uh, we see it happen to faithful churches and their leaders. It's upsetting that it happens a whole lot more in the private sphere than the public. No teacher is immune. If a prophet stands there and preaches a surrender to a holy God, yet himself does not concern his own life with holy living, he is no shepherd, he is a wolf. Now, I see the irony in preaching on this while standing here as a pastor myself. And and I'm humbled in that this is a huge reminder from Jesus that my character and my conduct matters. Holy living matters. This is why I'm thankful that at a church here like City on a Hill, we do our best to instill strategies to avoid disease tree situations, authentic leadership circles of accountability, wise and humble mentors for the pastor's faithful deacons who help oversee our pastors, people around us who out of a God-fearing, Christ-loving, spirit-empowering faithfulness can call attention to the log in my eye and point me back to the forgiving and holy saviour. See, as a church, pray 
for your pastors and their leaders because we need it. But the fruit of a preacher bears isn't only from his living, but as gifted sharers of the word also comes from what he teaches. See, while the faithful prophet preaches the word of God in spirit and in truth, the ravenous wolf preaches for gain, for prestige, for influence. They avoid doctrinal truths like justice, righteousness, holiness, the wrath of God. They steer clear of hard-hitting biblical truths such as hell or judgment. They sugarcoat the depravity of humanity and they water down the atoning work of Christ. They leave out things that should be emphasised and they emphasise things that should be left out. They stand at the crossroads. They stand at the crossroads of the narrow and wide gate, subtly pointing people, guiding people, deceiving people towards the wide and easy path. See, John Stott says, it is surely not an accident that Jesus' warning about false prophets in the Sermon on the Mount immediately follows his teaching about the two gates, ways, crowds and destinations. For false prophets are skilled at blurring the issue of salvation. Some so muddle or distort the gospel that they make it hard for seekers to find the narrow gate. See, there are false teachers out there who make out that the narrow gate isn't narrow at all, but so bored that walking through requires little to no restriction. Or worse, there are those who, are, who preach that there is no destruction awaiting travellers on the wide road. Contradicting Jesus' words, preachers out there say that all roads lead to God, that both end in life. See, Jesus is warning his listeners to be on guard because the ravenous wolves are exceedingly dangerous. They're leading people to the very destruction they say does not exist. So watch out. Watch out. Jesus is calling his followers to be on guard when it comes to their leaders, to pray for wise discernment, to not be deceived. As 1 John 4 says, test the spirits. To his Martin Luther encourage, cling to the pure word of God. And I love what J.C. Ryle says. J.C. Ryle, the theologian, says that the greatest safeguard to false teaching beyond all doubt is the study of the word of God with prayer for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Think of Psalm 119, it says the word is given to us as the lamp to our feet and a light for our path. See, the person who clings on to the word of God and reads it aright will not let themselves stumble. See, Jesus' words here aren't a call for us to go in some sort of hypocritical heresy hunt where we suspect every single teacher available. I really hope I don't get like 200 new emails tomorrow or something along those lines, but rather... It's a stern reminder. It's a stern reminder from Jesus that there are false teachers out there prowling. And so we must not cease in being mindful for the wolves in sheep's clothing. The narrow road is hard and the false prophets don't make it any easier as they try to deceive the few to join the many. So be on guard. See, as I was thinking and working through this passage and thinking through preachers and and the trees and the fruit they bore, I couldn't help but think of someone many of us have likely read about um, over the past few months. A bit of an elephant in the room. I really thought about Ravi Zacharias. If you haven't heard that name before, Ravi was an extremely well-known Christian apologist, a preacher who went around the world defending the Christian faith 
and teaching from the word, you know, imp- impacting the lives of millions upon millions through his self-named international ministry. He passed away early last year, but only recently was it confirmed and acknowledged that for a large part of his life, he was the offender of uh, sexual misconduct and great spiritual abuse. And the reports were damning, uh, agonising for the victims, uh, damaging to his ministry, devastating to the Christian witness. See, for many who first heard the dreadful news, it was startling likely unexpected. This was a man who was well-regarded, well-respected, a preacher who had played a significant role in many people's conversion story today, maybe even some of you sitting here today. Yeah, he was living a double life, it seemed, a life vastly different to the holy one he called people to. And here's the thing I was wrestling with. There are a lot of good fruits that came out of Ravi's ministry. So how do we take Jesus' words in verse 18? A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. While I don't stand here claiming to know if Ravi was repentant at the end uh, for his grievous sin, we can only pray and hope and trust in a God who truly does know. It still seems that with his hidden character and conduct eventually revealed, finally revealed to the world, it barely paints for us a good tree, but quite the opposite. So how is it that good still came out of this ministry? Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these are probably some of the most scariest, if not the most scariest words that have come out of Jesus' mouth. Um, it's here that Jesus reveals two claims. Jesus is describing for his listeners uh, the, the final day of judgment where all will stand before the Lord on account of their life on earth. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is where eternal life or endless destruction becomes a reality. And the one who stands before him, as we read, claims, first claims this, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And the fact that this person uses the words Lord, Lord shows a person who who understands who they're talking to, uh, who understands who they're speaking to, that this word signifies that they come to the Lord, they come to Jesus courteous, using a divine title. They come with enthusiasm uh, by saying it twice. They stand there claiming, Lord, Lord, I've preached, I've proclaimed your name, I've even cast out demons in your name, painted here as a very good Christian, yet it's the second claim that reveals the truth. Jesus tells this person, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what does Jesus reveal here to the listener? That knowing the right orthodox things doesn't get you life. That enthusiasm, zeal and fervency doesn't bring life. Even remarkable works in Jesus' name do not bring eternal life. Merely professing the right words isn't enough. Religious lip service doesn't get you in. Even the demons knew the name of Jesus. Merely doing great things in Jesus' name isn't enough. Even Judas, who would later betray Jesus, was given such power to do things as seen in Luke chapter 10. 
which actually, if you think about it, reveals more of who God is, that God is gracious, so gracious and so powerful and completely sovereign that he would allow a power, he would allow power to course through a man, though the man himself was lost. What Jesus reveals here is clear, that a person may say great things, may do great things in their ministry, may even get great results from it, but that says nothing about their salvation. We especially think of my question earlier about false teachers who Jesus just spoke about prior to this, which R. Kent Hughes says, a wolf can wear sheep's clothing, but it cannot grow a sheep's coat. It is possible to put grapes on thorns and figs on thistles, but they cannot grow there. It is possible to subscribe to the qualities of the Beatitudes and yet never truly own them from within. But appearances can only be kept up for so long. Time will reveal the true nature of the fruit sooner or later. We will know where a man stands. And it says, one of the scariest parts, I think, it says is that on that day, many, many will claim that they said and did such things, but will hear Jesus' harrowing words, I never knew you, depart from me. So this is extremely sobering, these words. Sobering. Because Jesus isn't only talking about the false teachers, pastors and preachers that we may see on the news, but he's talking about us. There are multitudes of religious folks, evangelical or not, who are lost. Why? Because they do not do the will of the Father who is in heaven. For some of us here, we may have all the theological head knowledge we could have. We may hold tightly onto our roles and responsibilities that we have in our church. We may even be baptized in Jesus' name. We may be content with where we are in our faith walk, maybe leaders, preachers, teachers of others. But if we have not practically done the will of our Father in heaven, that is we have not truly repented, not believed in Christ, not taken what Jesus has revealed to us in this whole Sermon on the Mount, that the character and conduct of a person in the kingdom of God means a, a profound heart obedience that one writer says is not only on the surface but permeates our inner being, then in spite of all our privileges and professions of faith, we might just hear those awful words, I never knew you, away from me. So the gate is narrow and the way is hard. So to the listeners sitting on the mount, hearing these words from Jesus at the time, I think they would have reflected on Jesus' weighty claims. And to be honest, most of them, if not all of them, would have likely come out confused, perplexed at Jesus' words, but also deeply confronted. Confronted, for they had just heard words from Jesus to be more righteous than even the more, most righteous of the time, to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, to enter the kingdom of heaven by doing the will of the Father. It would have been challenging. This would have been hard to fathom because they hadn't yet got the full picture. But if we continued reading Matthew, we'd see it wouldn't be long that they would see clearly, clearly Jesus' words. That the listeners would see the same man who preached the narrow way is the same man who walked the narrow path on way to be crucified for the sins of mankind. That the same man who described the differing fruit is the very vine who produces the good fruit to those who abide in him. That the same man who revealed those dreadful words on the final day is the very saviour who stands there on behalf of all those who give their lives to him, not on account of what they've done, but because of what he's done. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus walked the hard path. We couldn't walk. He lived the perfect life of good fruit. We couldn't live. He obeyed the will of, the, of his heavenly father all the way to the cross so that those headed towards destruction could have life in him. See, for us today who have the gospel in full view, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount isn't meant to push us towards despair, but it pushes us towards the grace of Jesus. Jesus who says in John chapter 10 that he is the gate, that whoever enters through him will be saved. The same Jesus who says in Matthew 28 that he's with us always to the end. This is the same Jesus who in John 14 says that he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. We only do the will of the Father when we build our life on the Saviour who did the will of his Father perfectly and faithfully out of his grace for us. See, and Jesus closes his sermon with this point in mind as he illustrates the fate of two houses. He says, one foolish man builds his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. But to the other man, wisely, he builds his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. See, to the foolish listener, they build their house on shifting foundations. They hear Jesus' words and brainlessly uh, push them aside. They are not concerned with searching the inward claims of Jesus. They, they favour not to obey Jesus' commands, never really breaking off from sin or, or taking up their cross. The rains and floods of crisis and calamity reveal the foundation, failing them completely. And if not, the storm of final judgment surely will. But to the wise listener, they build their house on rock. They hear Jesus' words and let them penetrate their hearts. They hear Jesus' commands and live in in joyful obedience, they conform to the character and kingdom of God. They repent, believe, deny themselves. What the wisest does is build their life completely on the one who is perfect, who went through the narrow gate, who produced the good fruit, who did the will of the Father. They build their life on Jesus. Jesus, the rock. Jesus, the foundation. There'll be many times where we will mess up and continue to mess up, but we have the perfect foundation in Christ who lived the life that we could not, and he died for our sins. And it's by his grace we are saved through him. See, in times of trial, the wise man remains unmoved, for their foundation is the rock of Jesus Christ. Their faith does not give way. And on the final day, they stand there before the Lord as he tells them, well done, good and faithful servant. See, the Sermon on the Mount is truly, truly amazing. It's had a lasting influence throughout history and it's had a lasting influence on our souls. How Jesus ends his sermon is so appropriate. Which gate will you enter? The narrow or the wide? Which foundation will you build on today? The rock or the sand? May we follow the well-written words of this beautiful hymn by William B. Bradbury. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame 
but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being the God who loves us, who cares for us, who guides us to sin in Jesus' words today. As the world offers us many roads and many ways, may we see the beauty, the truth, the grace of the narrow road. May we see the narrow road that Jesus walked all the way to the cross, that we may have life in you. God, you are with us when it's hard. We pray for your wisdom and protection from the many who try to steer us to the broad and wide road. We pray for them, Lord, that false teachers of today may be humbled to see your truth and your grace. For you are mighty to save. May more and more build the foundation of their life on the solid rock of Jesus. We thank you for our Lord and Saviour Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.